0: Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. You can find us on Facebook as well as Twitter and Instagram at Exchange Houston. The following is a message from our guest speaker. I've been excited about this weekend for a long time and uh, because this is a, a special friend of mine. Yesterday I went to do a wedding. Yesterday afternoon, and we were at the wedding. We were talking about it, and this guy said, "So, how did you get him to come?" And I said, "Well, he's actually a friend of mine. What you actually know him?" And so I'll tell you the story because I haven't told all you guys the story. I thought I did, but um, in 2000, back in 2000, February of 2000, actually, uh, we were or maybe it's 2001. We were at a I was at a pastors' conference in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, At Tommy Barnett's church, and we were standing at the sink, washing our hands in the restroom. And I looked in the mirror, and there stands the Million Dollar Man. And I knew immediately who he was. And I was like, "Oh man, I'm standing by the Million Dollar Man. He's kind of big." So we're washing our hands, and I'm kind of trying to figure out what to say to him so I don't sound stupid. Y'all know what it's like when you like meet somebody, and you're like, "What do I say? What do I say?" Do I, you know, I, you got to be cool. You got to act like it's not no big deal. Like, oh yeah, man, whatever. You know, I've seen him. So I'm trying to figure out what to say, and I said, um, "Mr. DiBiase," and he kind of looked over at me and said, "Yes." It actually, was yes. And I said, uh, "Do you have a son that was born September 10, uh, 1977, High Plains Baptist Hospital in Amarillo, Texas?" And he stopped, and he looked over at me, and he goes, are you stalking me? <laughs> and I said, no, sir. I said, I was born September 11th in the same hospital, and I said, Our, your, your wife, my mom crossed paths, my dad met you, and, and uh, you know, he saw your son, and, and uh, he's always told me the story of how he met you and stuff. And I said, and I just have grown up watching you. And I thought it was so cool. So me and your son, you know, I could actually be used to that. Maybe they switched us, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty dominant redhead. I'm not near as big as your son, but so I, I think they got it right. But anyway, it's possible you could be my dad. I don't know. <laughs> so he goes, he said, no way. He said, man, come back to my tent. Let's talk. So I went back to his tent. There were hundreds of tents out there and and we went back, and we sat down. We talked. I didn't go to any of the sessions the rest of the day. We just sat out there, and we talked. And uh, we made a connection. We made just a, a God connection. And uh, I ended up bringing him in, bringing him in to uh, our church where I was at at the time. We brought him in several times back-to-back. Uh, back. We did uh, school assemblies. We did dozens and dozens of school assemblies together with, with the Ted. And, and uh, man, we ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner together for weeks and we just got to know each other. And he'll call me sometimes. He'll say, hey, I need you to pray for uh, my son. Or, hey, I need you to pray for this, what, what's go- happening in my life. And Man, I, uh, when he does that, I hang up the phone and I pray. Because th- it's such an honor that he would trust me uh, for that in his life. One time, he came into Houston. And I was out of the country. And I got a phone call. And I looked at my phone. and it said, Ted DiBiase. And that's just cool. So I was like, wow. I answered it. And he said, hey, buddy. I'm in Houston, Texas, I'm passing through fixing, and get on a plane going somewhere." And he said, "And I couldn't come through Houston without giving you a call. Call him my buddy." And he said, "Just thinking about you." And I was like, "Man, that's so awesome. And that's the kind of relationship I have. And man, when I heard his story of redemption and the celebration of all the things that God's done in his life to bring him to this point. Um, all the things that he's gone through, the hell that he's gone through, but the the redemptive story of Jesus Christ in his life—it's powerful, and it's a story that people have got to hear, and men have to hear. Next time we bring him, we're gonna have to—we're gonna do a big wrestling event. We're gonna bring in all the wrestlers and and do the big event, and uh, we got to bring his wife uh, to to minister to the ladies. But it's gonna be a lot of fun. So I want to. Uh, Get you to help me welcoming my friend, the Million Dollar Man, Mr. Ted DiBiase.
1: Thank you you so much, Jared, and uh, the feeling's mutual. I I really mean that. It's like, uh, you know, uh, you maybe you are my son, (laughs) Uh, but we're. uh, Brothers for sure, brothers from different mothers. Um it's a real pleasure to be with you here this morning. Um I, I you know, and again I've I've known your pastor for so long and I've I've watched all of this happen over the years. I mean I, my calling is evangelism, that's what I'm called to, and, and uh I've been traveling and evangelizing for sixteen years. And uh I remember when I told my wife when I stopped physically wrestling. That it, I said, well, at least for the most part, all, all the hotels and the airports are, are behind me now. And God kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, "I'm just getting you ready for the real work, son." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he he taught me how to be a seasoned traveler, so I would know how to do it. Yeah. Um, but I've watched Jared grow, and I've watched him come to go to a place from being, you know, being that that servant in the chain to to being a pastor. And, God bless you, buddy, and you're going to do great. And your church, your church is going to grow and explode because I know your heart. And uh, so although I'm, I'm not a wrestler anymore, not in the physical sense, and I promise nobody, nobody in this <laughs> building or anywhere else is ever going to see this body in spandex tights again. <laughs> That's a horrifying thought. But nonetheless, I have, come, I have come to wrestle with you. I've come to challenge you today and understand that I challenge you as a Christian brother because I never know who's in the crowd when I come because a lot of times when I come, uh, the church going folks, the Christians, bring, they bring friends. And sometimes because I'm advertised, you know, wrestling fans will just show up. So I never know who's in the crowd. So I always want to be sure to cover all the bases. So I challenge you here this morning, if you've never accepted Christ, you know, I, I, I had an encounter with an atheist uh, one time, where I, I had I'd just done a speaking engagement. Actually, it was not a it was not a ministry engagement. It was more, more of a uh, motivational speech, and it was at a uh, a hotel adjacent to a casino in Biloxi, Mississippi. And so I drink a lot of coffee, and so you know, I go back and I'm, I I stop and I ask the guy if he's got coffee. And he says, "Well, I'm, I'm brewing a fresh pot. Can you wait?" I said, "Perfect." So as I'm waiting for the coffee, there's two guys who are having this conversation. One's a believer and one's not. And so the believer recognizes me. And of course, well, I thought he's going to recognize me because I'm the wrestler and all that stuff. And he actually had seen me on Christian television. I think it's the first time anybody recognized me for being a minister. And he said, uh, he said, Ted, you know, can you help me out here? And I said, well, you know, I couldn't help but overhear your conversation. So oh, I asked this nonbeliever. I said, do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? She said, no, Shoot. I said, first question, have you ever read the Bible? No. Maybe something a little bit here or a little bit there. I've heard this or I've heard that, but have I ever actually read the Bible cover to cover, studied it? No. I said, okay. I said, okay, there there are actually hundreds of religions in the world. But there are four or five major world religions. There's 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 the Judeo Christian belief, there's Muslims, there's Buddhists, there's Hindus. I said can you tell me basically how each one of those religions differ in what they believe? And once again, his question was, well, not really. So here's what I said to him, and I say this to you. I said, so what you're telling me is that you don't believe in a God you've never spent 15 minutes looking for. I said, let's just say for the sake of argument that you're right. There's no God, we're all gonna, evolution is true, and we're just all gonna die one day, and that's it, lights out. I said, if that's true, then it doesn't really matter. And I said, but for the same sake of argument, let's say I'm right and you're wrong. He sees if I'm right, you're wrong for all eternity. Last time I checked, that's a long time to be wrong. And and quite frankly, I said, in my estimation, only a fool would blindly go through life believing there's no God only to die and find out he was wrong. And I said, now I'm going to tell you something that might upset you a little bit, but I got to, you know, it's who I am. You don't want to know the truth. And he said, why? I said, because if you realize there's a God, then you're not in control anymore. And you don't want to give up control. And the Bible says clearly until a man comes to the end of himself, you can't reason with him. I can preach so I'm blue in the face, but until a man finally comes to a place of brokenness, comes to a place where he finally hits the wall and realizes, well, you know what, if I keep making the same choices, I'm going to keep getting the same results. And you realize that you, there's no way that you can live a perfect life. There's no way that you can live a sinless life. And there's no way that you can make it, you cannot live up to God's standard because God gave us the law just to show us that we needed it. And you realize that you cannot live this life or live in eternity without somebody to rescue you. And when you figure that out, that's that's when you cry out to Jesus. So that's for those of you who doubt or don't believe. I challenge you today. What God says in his Bible, in his word is, he said, when you search for me and you search for me with all your heart, you'll find me. And I know that's true. And you know, I've taken that journey. Now, the next one would be for all of those who you, all of those in here who say, yeah, I'm a Christian. That's why I'm here today. Okay. I know one of the, one of the men of God that had a huge impact on my life, his name was uh, Edwin Lewis Cole. Dr. Cole, he actually wrote a series of books the very first book he ever wrote was called Maximized Manhood, which talks about what the characteristics of being a real man are. Namely, he said, uh, you know, manhood is synonymous with Christlikeness. In other words, the more Christlike you are in character, the more of a man you are. But anyway, as I was sitting in a meeting and Dr. Cole was teaching, he held the Bible up to all of us men and he said, gentlemen, if this book doesn't have lordship in your life, then Jesus Christ isn't Lord of your life. If the only time you crack your Bible is on Sunday morning when the pastor says turn to this is what we're studying today, you don't have a relationship. And you see, the difference between genuine Christianity and every other world religion is we're not a religion. We're a relationship. And unless we're walking in the intimacy of that relationship, we're just practicing religion. And religion, my friends, will take you straight to hell. And we all need to be challenged that way, especially in America, because we have been so blessed in this country for so long that we don't even realize how blessed we are. That's why I encouraged my my sons when they were young. You go on a mission trip, you go to a third world country, and you see how people live. And folks, I want to tell you something. The people that we incarcerate, that we put in prison, live like kings compared to 70% of the world's population. They have a roof over their head. They have three meals a day. They have clothes on their back. They have everything but their freedom. But they're living better than 70% of the world. And we are bombarded daily in our culture, daily, by media Our television, you talk about an idol, wow. That television can be a huge idol in a lot of people's lives. And we need to be challenged. I mean, all of us. I need to be challenged. Accountability is so important in anybody's life. If you're not accountable to anybody, it's not a question of if you'll fall, it's just a question of when. So I want to challenge you today. Is Jesus Lord in your life? Is he Lord? Because there are times in our lives that we get so busy doing the stuff, even as a pastor or, or an evangelist, we get so busy doing the work that sometimes it, 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 it cuts into our personal time with God. And every now and then he's got to come along and kick all of us in the seat of the pants and go, hey, remember me? I'm the one you're doing all this work for. And if you'd just spend a little more time with me, I could make it a lot easier. See, the only thing the devil fears is a Christian on his knees. When you're on your knees and you're in the presence of Almighty God, he can't touch you. And the reason we call the Bible the, the, the sword, because that's where our strength is. The more of that you have in you, the more of that's going to come out of you. and that's what we battle him with. When, he, when Jesus was baptized. And driven into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And the devil came to tempt him. Jesus responded to Satan by quoting scripture three times. Now, you have to understand, Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So God is speaking to a creature he created. And all he had to do was go, (laughs) scram. But he didn't. He quoted scripture. Why do you think he did that? Because everything Jesus did on earth, he didn't waste a single minute or a single word. Everything he did on earth was to show you and me the way. His words, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And we either believe that or we don't. We either accept it as whole or we leave it alone. So I want to challenge you today. And I wonder how many of you Christians in this room today, what are you dealing with? Are you dealing with anger? I'm, you know, because I'm going to, as you hear my story, I had to be forgiven for a lot of stuff. And as my wife and I travel and speak together at times, my wife started talking about forgiveness and how forgiveness is it's not optional. God says, it's a command, forgive as you've been forgiven. It doesn't say if you're asked. It doesn't say if they deserve it. No matter if they, they, they don't deserve it at all, forgive. Must tough in the flesh, especially if you're trying to forgive somebody that raped you or maybe raped your wife, or you're trying to forgive somebody that ran over your kid, some drunk driver. There's a lot of things that happen in our life that make it hard for us to forgive. But here's what I'm telling you, folks. I'm not, and and you can't do that in your own power. But in God's strength, everything is possible. So what are you hanging on to today? You know, what, you know, who hurts you really bad and, you know, you just, you, you, you don't even want to talk about it? You refuse to think about it. Well, understand this. As long as you harbor that anger and that bitterness, you might as well pray to that wall because God can't hear you. Until you come to a place where you're willing to forgive as you've been forgiven, God's not going to hear you. That's one of those commands. And when I, I mean, it's like in the Old Testament, you know, it says as as you're bringing your offering and you realize that you have a a grief, you know, there's something wrong between you and a friend, put your offering down and go reconcile to your friend and then come back so that your offering might be acceptable to God. We can't hang on to junk in the trunk, we got to let it go, no matter how hard it is. Because God forgives us every day of something. One of the questions I'm often asked is, of all the things I could have chosen to be in life, why did I choose to be a wrestler? Let's face it, not a normal job. What do you do for a living today? Well, I run around in spandex and I hit people in the head of the chairs. What do you do? (laughs) But the answer is uh, my dad. I I was fortunate to be, be raised by a very loving stepfather who came into my life when I was five years old. Mike DiBiase was a son of Italian immigrants, and uh, he was born and raised in a poor Italian neighborhood in South Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, he was a kid that grew up in a rough neighborhood. He was a kid who grew up in one of those, you might call it like the Italian hood. But he dreamed of playing football. He dreamed of uh, wrestling. And all his friends scoffed at him. All his friends thought he was, you know, all his friends, while they were out getting drunk, getting high and being cool and getting thrown in jail and all that kind of stuff. Some things never changed. He he chased a dream. And my dad became one of four athletes in the history of the University of Nebraska to letter eight times, four years in football, four in wrestling. Prior to going to Nebraska while in the Navy, right at the end of World War II, 1946 won the AAU National Heavyweight Wrestling title. I knew none of those things about my dad when I was five. I recognized his love for me and my mother, but I was a kid who grew up, wanted to be just like my dad. One of the things my dad told me, he said, son, he says, don't do what everybody else is doing. That's easy. Don't follow the crowd. He says, what, what, you know, you know, all that macho man stuff, it's just crap. He said, you want to be a real man, stand up and cut your own path in life. Be the head, not the tail. Be the leader, not the follower. You you be a leader and you be led by Christ. That's the other thing my dad did is he took me to church. Now, my dad, being Italian, like most Italians, was Roman Catholic. So I was raised in Roman Catholicism. And I had a very strong, what I call childlike faith in God. I mean, I was the altar boy who on, I mean, I didn't go to church on Sunday and Wednesday. I went every day of the week. There's a mass said every day of the week. And so when I had to be the altar boy at the 6 o'clock mass, and there was four feet of snow on the ground, it was 20 below in Omaha, there wasn't anybody else in that church except the priest and me. And he lived there. But I never missed a day because it was important to me. Now, I have a lot of issues with Catholicism today, and if anybody wants to have a conversation with me about that, I'll be glad to tell you. But number one, the Bible says that God is no respecter of person. So when Paul speaks of the saints, he's speaking of all true believers. You know, so there's, God sh- shows no favoritism. So we make all these saints, saint this, saint that. Well, we're all saints because we're believers. And you can't pray to those saints Because the Bible says the only mediator between God the Father and and us is God the Son. I revere Mary because she was the mother of Jesus Christ. But I do not pray to her because she cannot hear me. And if if that upsets you, just read your Bible. Because I found out a lot of these things when I started reading the Bible, not the catechism. If you believe in purgatory. Well, if you believe in purgatory, then what you're telling me is that the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God on the cross, standing by itself, is not enough to get you to heaven. That when you die, you're going to go to this place that's hell-like until somebody prays you out of there. Hogwash. Now, I've had a few people come up. And say to me afterwards, you you upset me. I said, you know what? I'm sorry I upset you. But I'm going to tell you what. If you read the Bible, then who's upsetting you is the son of God. Because all I am quoting you is what he said. And basically, Martin Luther was right. We are saved by grace through faith. We cannot earn heaven. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. For you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. Gang, that says a whole lot. In other words, you can't earn it. You can't earn it. It's it's a gift. It's a gift by the grace of God. But the evidence that God is really in your life, the evidence that you have become grateful to a Savior who died for you is the good works that you will do out of a grateful heart. And it also, it's also telling you that God's got a plan for your life. He's got a purpose for your life. So, you know, for me, as you hear my story, what I did for 20 years was I tried to shove my purpose down God's throat. See all those things I wanted when I was young was that was going along pretty good. I was becoming this good athlete. Everything's cool, and then uh, you know wrestling back then was very regional. We traveled a lot. Wrestlers would go to what they call a territory, a certain region in the country, and you would be on regional television. You know, I mean, like right now, I live in Jackson, Mississippi. Memphis, Tennessee, is 200 miles north of us. Well, Memphis had their own their own wrestling promotion. No, you know, I'm only 200 miles away from, from Memphis, but I could go to Memphis and nobody knew who I was. It was territorial, so you, you you moved around a lot. And so at the end of my freshman year of high school, coming out of the ninth grade, I, and we had been in Omaha, Nebraska, where my dad is from, we moved back to Texas, to Amarillo, Texas, which was the, the headquarters for a particular territory that covered, I mean, uh, as far south as like San Angelo, Odessa, Abilene, you know, and everything north of that. Okay. And, uh, on July the 2nd, 1969 during the wrestling match, my dad suffers a heart attack in the ring in Lubbock, Texas and dies. Gang, My whole life changed that day. The next thing I know, I'm moving to a small town in Southern Arizona where my grandparents live. My grandmother, my mother's mother, Who uh, ran a truck stop in this little town? My grandmother was probably one of the hardest working, most selfless women I ever knew. And so I moved back to this little town. And I knew Wilcox because I was with my grandmother there between the ages of two and five. But now I've got these big dreams. You know, now I'm thinking college football and, you know, NFL and wrestling. And I'm looking around Wilcox going, wow, can my dreams come true here? Now, if that's not enough, I watch as my mother sinks into despair and alcoholism overnight. I remember going home and hear my mother say things like, I just wish I'd die. I wish I were dead. I have nothing to live for anymore. Hmm. How about me and my little brother, mom, my peers, all those kids that I'd now be going to school with when they found out I had these lofty goals. They got, I got the same reaction that my dad got from all the kids in his neighborhood. Man, you're dreaming, Dennis Wilcox. Look, take a look around you. It ain't going to happen here, pal. Relax, dude. Here, have a beer, smoke a joint. Chill out, be cool. Now you spell cool, capital F O O L. Been there, done that. I didn't do those things in high school. One, because I had the influence and the example of a tremendous role model, a dad. And the other is because I walked in this childlike faith. Well, a lot of my friends were getting drunk and getting high on the weekends because there really wasn't anything else to do in Wilcox. I was chasing my dream. I was working out. Coach gave me a key to to the weight room where I could go anytime I wanted. But a lot of those nights I'd go to the cemetery where my dad is buried and I would pace back and forth in front of his grave and I would, I would cry out to God and to him. And I asked God, you know, I said, God, I, you know, I know my dad's gone. I'm not going to see him until eternity. But I want to make him proud. I want to I live so that he would be proud of me give me the strength, give me the talent, give me the goal, give me the skills I need to achieve the goals I've set. What I was really praying in a very childlike way is, Lord, if you'll give me the desires of my heart, I'm going to honor you with it. Again, God's faithful. As it turned out, I was the first kid to ever graduate from this little school in southern Arizona with a full scholarship to play Division I college football. Now, my story ended there, we could all pat Ted on the back. Great job, kid. Man, you stayed, you stayed close to your convictions and your goals and to God, and man, God... God came through and he showed up. Yes, he did in a big way. Not the end of the story. When I got to college, I was 18 years old. Two things then crept into my life and consumed me for the next 20 years. My male pride and my ego. The Bible says very plainly, pride goeth before the fall. And your ego, at least in the flesh, will edge God out, E-G-O, ego. Now, I want to make a, a point here. Guys, listen to me. I'm not telling you to kill your ego. Now I want the girls to understand this. Ladies, God made us with a lot of testosterone. That's why when we were little boys and you were little go- girls, we were having dirt clod fights and you were playing with dolls. We want to go see Braveheart. You want to see Sweet Home, Sweet Home Alabama. That's okay. It's the way we're made. Men were made, God made us to be competitive. And somehow over the years, it's crept into the church that, you know, men get this idea. Well, you know, it's not so, it's not really important to live a significant life. It's it's not important to be number one. You know, it's like you see all those old movies that Jesus is this real meek person. Uh Uh-uh. Yes, Jesus did say turn the other cheek, but if you understood the context of what he said, if somebody slaps you, give to them the other cheek. When the Romans would go into a village and and take over, they would go in and they would find the toughest guy in town. Who's 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 the bully? Who's the toughest guy in town? They'd find that guy and they'd walk up to him and they'd slap him. And the natural response for most of those tough guys was to immediately fight back. And then they would slaughter him in front of all the people, which would would strike fear into everybody. But you go up and you slap the strong man, and he turns to you the other cheek. Says, go ahead, hit the other one. You see, there's an inner strength that's much deeper that's much smarter. I may not be able to get you now, but I'll get you in when I can. You're not gonna defeat me. Jesus, the Jesus that walked into the temple courts with a whip, the temple courts were the, the that was the authority of, you know, in Jerusalem at the time. They're governed by the Romans, Pontius Pilate, the Roman empire. They're under the authority of Rome. But to the Jewish people who no longer have a king, the seat of authority as far as the Jews are concerned is the high priest. So the temple courts is like, it's, it's like it's if, it's if Jesus, it's like if I walked into the, into the, uh, the capital of the United States with a whip. And up until recently, not a bad idea. And drive out, he drove out all the money changers. He said, my father's house is a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. That's righteous indignation. I don't see anything weak about that. Guys, it's okay to be ambitious. God wants you to be number one. Whatever it is, you, however you're gifted. In other words, we are not unique in that God loves us all equally. God is no respecter of person. But we are uniquely gifted. God has gifted each one of us with unique gifts and talents. Our job is to discover through our relationship with him what those gifts and talents are. And then take those gifts, take those talents, be the very best you can be. Go for it. Be number one. Here's the difference. To his glory, not yours. I'm sports. I'm a sports guy. Everything's sports with me. Tim Tebow, anybody? Anybody? You know know who Tim Tebow is. Tim Tebow was a quarterback of the University University of Florida uh, college football team. His parents were missionaries, and when his mother became pregnant with him, the doctors told her, you need to abort this child. It's going to be deformed. It's going to be handicapped. You know, you're better off just getting rid of it. But they trusted God, and of course, God came through with a big way. This guy grows up a totally normal child, and as a quarterback of, of, of a national uh, champion college football team. Tim Tebow, who put scripture on the black that he put under his eyes, who, who bowed, who, who took a knee and raised his hand to God and said a short prayer every time a touchdown was scored. Not wanting to, not intending to bring any attention to himself, but God brought that attention Tebow goes to the NFL and it ends, it ends up he's not really, I don't know, it's the, something about the way he threw a ball or whatever, but it ends up not really being first string quarterback material in the NFL. But there was a time when Tim Tebow was getting more press in New York. He, was, he, he had been traded to the uh, New York Jets. Now, Eli Manning, who I know personally, was a quarterback of the New York Giants World champion team, and Tim Tebow's getting more pressed than Eli Manning. How's that happen? God, Tebow's on Sports Center now. He's one of the announcers on Sports Center. Most of those guys that get those jobs, they're 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 all guys that either have been, you know, Super Bowl coaches or you know standout players, first-string players on on any of the teams. So how did Tebow get that job? You see, Tim Tebow's number one concern in life is not being the starting quarterback on an NFL football team. His number one concern is, am I walking in God's perfect will for my life? And wherever that will is, I'm going to be there. And that's what I'm finally doing today. But oh, the journey I took to get there. Gang, when I got to college, I started doing things in college I wouldn't do in high school. I started going out with the boys and having a beer after the ball. You know, all the Bible doesn't say you can't have a beer. It says drunkenness is the sin, and I reasoned that I could have a couple beers and not get drunk. Well, we all know where that goes, especially when you're a teenager. So I started waking up on, you know, Saturday and Sunday morning with a hangover. I'm not going to go to church today. i got to sleep this off, but I'll be there next week. Next week never came. By the time I was 27 years old, I had failed to complete college by one year. I wasn't fast enough to play football in the NFL. And I had been married and divorced. Oh, yeah, that's right. I got married the first time when I was 20 years old. Now, I'm not going to stand here and say there aren't any 20-year-old men that aren't mature enough to get married, but I would say 99.9% of 20-year-old men are clueless at the age of 20. And and fellas, you know whether you want to face it or not, the ladies mature faster than we do. With my boys, I used to we'd go we go out shopping around or so. I'd find a real pretty girl, and her 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 obvious boyfriend is some nerdy looking guy with you know big thick glasses on, you know Poindexter. They go, wow, look at that couple over there. And They go, golly, Dad, what is she seeing him? I said, security. The girls don't just look for what's on the outside because what's most important is on the inside. And so you learn. So anyway, I, you know, and so I've been married and divorced. Now I don't have a son from that first marriage. And now I'm, I'm not with my, I can't be with my son except on weekends and special occasions. My son, Michael, who was born the day before Pastor Jared. How could I have blown it so badly when I got off to such a great start? I abandoned my childlike faith. I, let, I, let, I allowed those things to come into my life and take over. But by this time, I had become a professional wrestler. 27 years old. I'm, you know, I'm, yeah, I've been wrestling by that time six years. And what I believe God said to Ted was, go ahead, Ted, go get all those things you think you want. I'm going to let you have them. You go climb that material ladder of success. You go become that big famous wrestler you want to be and find out what life is like there without me in it. Somewhere down the road, son, you and I are going to have another discussion about this. How many parents in the room, Anybody anybody in here a parent of a teenager? Isn't it amazing how when our kids become teenagers, all of a sudden they think we're stupid? I mean they think we're clueless. We're not hip, we're not cool. You know you got a smartphone, it's smarter than you, you don't know how to use You don't know what Facebook is. You don't know you know what, you know, what century are you in? Don't you just want to grab them and shake them? I mean, you know, they get real mad because we give them boundaries. You know, they got a curfew. They think we're just a bunch of killjoys. You just don't want me to have any fun. I not want to shake him and go, look, you little moron. I only have 30 years of life experience on you. I've already been down the road you're traveling. I know what's coming. We give them rules and we give them boundaries because we love them and we're trying to protect them. Well, let's take that up a notch. Our heavenly father, 30 years of life experience, right? He says, I'm only the God of the universe. I've only been around (laughs) for eternity. And I've given you a standard to live by. My word. The Bible. If you just follow the rule book, as Jesus said, you will have life and have it how? More abundantly. Does it mean that you won't have strife and trouble? No, Jesus, I mean, he promised us. You know, take up your cross and follow me. He never promised it was going to be easy. He promised us it'd be worth it. But that whatever trial or tribulation that we would go through, that he would be right there with us. And that when you come to a place of genuine relationship with him, no matter what happens in your life, you have this peace in your life. A peace the Bible describes as passing all understanding. And I certainly was far from that. Along this journey though, God crossed my path with Melanie, a Christian girl who I met in Atlanta, Georgia, when I went to wrestle there, what was then Georgia Championship Wrestling. I went there in late 1980. And on April the 26th 1981, I met Melanie. How do I know that? How do I remember the date? Because I spotted her at a swimming pool. And this pretty girl in the swimming pool. And she's with a group of people and gosh, you know, I'm just kind of admiring her from a distance. And there's, you know, you know, one of those guys, probably her boyfriend. So anyway, so I go and I shower. And this is funny, you talk about fate. I shower, I'm getting ready to go wrestle. I'm at the Omni that night and I'm, now I'm dressed and I'm leaving. I'm in my car and I'm, I'm leaving. And I drive back to the swimming pool, and I get out of my car, and I'm walking around the pool, looking around as if I have left something. I'm just looking for another opening. <laughs> and the girl, <laughs> Melanie's her date, she wasn't a boyfriend, because I didn't know that then, but this guy's her date. And I later found out, he's the wrestling fan, and he says to me, hey, Ted, got a girl over here that wants your autograph. Mel, you'd like to get Ted's autograph, wouldn't you? She was in the pool. You know how when you get on somebody's shoulders and you kind of horse fight, you know? That's what she was doing. And she kind of looked over and she said, autograph? You know what, I've never had an autograph. Here, sign my visor. Well, she handed me her visor. Her visor was soaking wet. I said, well, this is not going to work, but I said, if you'll follow me in the office, I'm sure they have stationery." What a sly devil, right? (laughs) So we get in there, and I said, what's your name? She said... Melanie, but everybody calls me, calls me Mel. And I said, okay, to Mel, the best looking girl at the pool for sure, triple exclamation point. I said, you know what? I don't even know you, but I'm going to sign this love. And I signed it, love, Ted DiBiase, 42681. And then she goes, what number are you? What? <laughs> she said, you play for the Falcons, right? <laughs> I said, no, she said, so why am I getting your autograph? I said, well, I'm a professional wrestler. She goes, you mean like that phony stuff on television? (laughs) I just got a big grin on my face, and I said, yeah, and you're probably the only person that could say that to me and get away with it. (laughs) But that's when Melanie and I met. Melanie, this Christian girl comes to my life, and we fall deeply in love. It was like, uh, it it was just there. And on the last day of 1981 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, we got married. I didn't wanna have any more children that I couldn't be with. I didn't want any more mistakes. You know, I I wanna do this right. God starts coming back into my life at this point. Melanie uh, has started to go to uh, a Bible study. The guy that ran, that owned the gym where I worked out, strong Christian, always had Bible tracts on the counter. So she starts going to a Bible study at his house He calls me in his office one day. He says, are you in love with Mel? I said, she wouldn't be here if I wasn't. He says, why aren't you married? And I told him all the reasons. And, you know, I'm divorced now. I, I, I blew it. I should have never gotten married. I have a son I can't see. Blah, 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 blah. And he said, listen to everything very patiently. He says, well, it sounds good, Ted, but you've learned from mistakes. You want to do it right. But here's the bottom line. You're living in sin. Bip, right between the eyes. He said, the way I see it, either somebody moves out until you decide what you're going to do. Or you married. And in either case, both individually and as a couple, you repent and ask God for forgiveness. Well, I knew he was right. So I went home and I spoke with Mel. She said, I said, this is a hard life. It's a hard life. I said, when I met you in Atlanta, I was coming home every night. That's not the way this, that's the only territory in the entire country where that's, that happens. I'm going to be gone a lot. You got to know that you can do this. She goes, I wouldn't be here, I wouldn't have quit school and disappointed my parents and moved in with you. I said, okay. So on New Year's Eve, we got married at that at Foxy's at his house, and my best man was a wrestler named Junkyard Dog. Yeah. <laughs> so we began to go to a non-denominational church. Melanie's best girlfriend was a. a Daughter of a, a Baptist preacher, so, but we she goes, okay, you, you you were raised in Catholicism, I you know, I'm Baptist basically, but you know I don't claim that. So let's go to this non-denominational church, and so we did, and it's you know, and I hate to say this, but it's the truth. It's the first time that I heard the gospel preached straight from the Bible and not what they call the catechism. It's the first time in my life that I heard that my eternity hinged on a personal relationship with Jesus and not all these works. And it's the first time that I answered an altar call and said that prayer we call the sinner's prayer. But here's what didn't happen. When I left the church, I didn't sprint down to the Christian bookstore and buy the Bible, buy my first Bible and dive in. You see, and as I look back, folks, what I realize is that for, a, for, 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 for 20 years, I had an intellectual relationship with God because I have believed the gospel message most of my life. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, he, he was born of the Virgin Mary and he suffered and died under Pontius Pilate. He was buried and he did rise on the third day and he ascended into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the world and take home those who have placed their trust and hope in him. And the only hope that any of us have is him. But here's the difference between heaven and hell. 18 inches, moving all you know about Jesus from here to here. Because when it gets in here, it has no choice but to come pouring out of your life. When I was young, that five and six-year-old boy, so enthralled with my new daddy, and people would say that to me. they say, you want to be just like your daddy, don't you? And I'd go, yeah, but how do you know? And they'd laugh at me. They'd say, are you kidding? Everything you do and say. You see, I didn't have a big sign hanging around my neck or a fish emblem on the back of my truck wearing my Christian T-shirt so everybody could identify me as a Christian. It just came pouring out of my life. And that's what I understand today, that that same attitude that drove me, that compelled me to wanna be so much like my dad is the attitude that I must have for my savior. Because if he is not the number one most important relationship in my life, then I'm just a poser. You see, we sang that song this morning. That we surrender all. All that I am is yours. All that I am. You see, before we can walk the aisle and commit your life to Christ, you have to surrender it first. And gang, we're either all in or we're not in. It's all or nothing. And that's what it took me so long. Because I kept trying to love God on my terms and not his. Because what was really most important to me was my career. So, which was driven by what, ego? Well, in 1984, we moved, you know, Mid-South Wrestling, which actually Houston became, you know, at the last few years, became a part of Mid-South. And Mid-South was a big territory. It was Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi. And then Bill Watts, who was the owner, he made a deal with Paul Bosch, who used to run, He he was wrestling in Houston, and Houston became part of, Mid-South. And I spent the better part of my first 12 years of my career in Mid-South. I mean, I went to New York once and I'd been to Georgia a couple times and Kansas City, but most of the time I was in Mid-South. But uh, uh, anyway, I I had left Mid-South, I'd gone back to Georgia. And then in in October of 84, I went, I came back to Mid-South. This is right when the WWF started to take off. And I remember, I think I was in a hotel in Baton Rouge. And uh, you know I opened the door and they had, there was a paper there at the door, USA Today, front page, I think it was, might have been a local paper, can't remember. The WWF sits, indoor world attendance record. Wow. So I realized right then if I was gonna stay in the wrestling industry that it was gonna have to be working for that company, because everything else was gonna go away. Anyway, in 84, I came back to Mid-South. They had just had WrestleMania won, I think. So I knew, I also knew that they had their key players at the time, for the time, because everything's timing. And my wife and I, we joined Morrison Heights Baptist Church. Now, I still travel all the time. I was rarely in that church because... I worked every day of the week. I wrestled in a different town every day, sometimes twice on Sunday. But when I look back, what I, you know, what I could have done is what I do now. It's like this morning. I, you know, I'm speaking in church this morning. Well, you know, I got up in my hotel room this morning and I flipped around until I, I, I found a, a service on television. So I've already been to church. I went to church and I got fed before I ever come here. Now I could have done that when I was wrestling. it wasn't on the agenda so was I really totally in no I wasn't was a poser I was still trying to do things my way 1987 early 1987 I walked the aisle again say the prayer again I'm baptized again because the first time I got baptized quite frankly I was too young Baptism is an outer expression of something that has happened inwardly. But you have to be knowledgeable of the decision you're making. When you're four and you're five, you don't know. So babies that get baptized, you know, again, it's just not biblical. So I'm baptized again. Now, my pastor was very, you know, he said, you know, he encouraged me he said, Ted, I want, you, he said, I want you to here's what I want you to do. He says, you know, get you a good devotional. He gave me a couple of suggestions. He said, read your Bible daily. He said, try to start your day and then your day. So you don't have to read 20 chapters. He said, read a, read a paragraph. Read a chapter. Start with a book. I mean, you might, it might take you a month to go through a whole book of the Bible. He said, but the, the key is work on that. Everything he said was saying one thing, relationship. He said, surround yourself, get three or four guys in your life that you can be accountable to. Again, no accountability, just a question of when you're going to fall. People who you can share all your struggles with. He says, because know this, the devil's going to come quickly now to pluck the seed that God's just planted in your life. And he'll wrap it up in the prettiest package you've ever seen, because he's the greatest liar of all time. And he will attack you where where you're the most vulnerable. And that's exactly what happened. Because I mean, within a month, maybe two—I can't remember exactly—I got the biggest break of my wrestling career. You know, you know, Vince McMahon calls me to New York, and I'm sitting in his office, and he's laying all, all this stuff. He said, "You know, we've got this idea. And it was his idea. This character. You know, he's this very rich guy who's—you know—he's a bully. You know, he's—he looks down his nose at people, think he's, he thinks he can buy anybody or anything. And you know, he said everybody hates that kind of guy." And I started laughing. I said, I do too. <laughs> so we think you could be our, one of our most evil villains. And we're going to try to we're gonna market you in such a way that the public believes you're rich. So we're going to fly where, everywhere first class. You're going to have limousine service every day. And you won't be staying at the Fairview Inn anymore. And it's the Hilton, the Hyatt, and the Marriott, baby. Wow, tough job. Somebody had to do it. <laughs> the only two other guys got that kind of treatment back then. Hulk Hogan and Andre. Of course, Andre was 7'4", 4'50". He ain't going coach anyway. (laughs) Where did I get attacked? Right where I was the most vulnerable. And I wasn't ready. I I already told you what Jesus said to Satan after he was baptized and spent 40 days in the wilderness. The difference is that. Jesus basically, Jesus said, when you have seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. But did I have that relationship with Christ? No, I didn't. So God gives you enough rope to hang yourself. He lets us go. March 1992, WrestleMania 8 took place in Indianapolis, Indiana. I was at the height of my fame. And that night after the show, I go out on the town in my tailor-made suit, big gold chain around my neck beautiful girl on each arm, and I hit all the hot spots in Indianapolis so I could be seen, because I'm cool. Yeah, there's that old rock and roll song, drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Yep, that was me. By the grace of God, I was never addicted to any drugs or alcohol. I did my share. The biggest problem in Ted's life was lust. And the saddest thing about it is there there was no problem I didn't have a problem in my marriage. There's a lot of reason guys do that. If things aren't good at home, you're, it's sure to happen. But things were good at home. I was on an ego trip. And it doesn't get any uglier. So I catch a plane out of Indianapolis at six o'clock in the morning, flying into Detroit, check into the Marriott Hotel, and I go to a pay phone in the lobby because this was before we were all carrying cell phones, to check in with my wife. What a nice guy. What a moron. Big surprise that day. My wife, my wife who had trusted me unconditionally, my wife who had bore two children for me, my wife who had also accepted my son, Michael, my oldest son who God gave back to me when he was 11. (laughs) Come on, Ted. It's just a bottle of water. <laughs> <laughs> Arthritis. <laughs> um, my wife is home. She's taking care of everything. She's paying the bills. I mean, I'm I'm making the money and bringing it home. But she's still. I mean, she's raising three boys almost single-handedly. And never, ever, never, ever called me anywhere in the world to check up on me because she trusted me. Now she's discovered that I'm committing adultery. Not just a couple times. I don't want to talk about this on the phone. I'll be on the next plane home. She said, no, no you won't. You don't live here anymore. <laughs> Click. First words out of my mouth. Oh, God, help me. Now, you want to talk about a hypocrite? Wow. Oh, yes, you're the God who I cried out to when I was 15. My dad died and my mom started drinking out in that cemetery. And you came to me there, Lord, and you comforted me there. And you gave me the desires of my heart. I got that scholarship and I went to college and I, uh, hmm, well, I pretty much abandoned you. And in spite of that, in spite of blowing my first marriage, You brought Melanie into my life. You blessed me with this Christian girl. You blessed us with two children. You give me back my son. Then you blessed my career beyond my my wildest hope or expectation. After I had recommitted myself to you. And I did it again. I abandoned you. So what did I deserve from God? Well, the Bible tells us we all deserve hell. And quite frankly, there are not enough preachers preaching hell anymore. Because folks, if there's a the heaven, there's a the hell. Here's a couple things. Jesus. And nobody spoke more about hell in the entire Bible than Jesus did. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to death. Many there enter through. But small is the gate and narrow the path that leads to life. And only a few find it. That's frightening. You know that that commercial, the few, the proud, the Marines. No, the few, the humble, the real Christians. Jesus, again, if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. If your eye caused you to sin, gouge it out. Better to go through life blind and crippled than to burn in hell. That doesn't get any plainer than that. But what I want to talk to you about now is the most amazing thing in the world, and that is God's grace and love. The next call I made was to a man who today is my closest friend. I met Hal Santos when he was a youth minister right there in the Baton Rouge area. I met him in that same gym. He walked up to me one day, introduced himself, said he'd seen me on regional television. He said, I just got one question for you, Ted. I said, sure. He said, do you know Jesus? (laughs) Pretty bold guy. That caused a sit down come to Jesus meeting kind of thing. I said, yeah, let's, I'd like to talk to you about that. So I shared some of the, my life with him, some of the things I've shared with you today. And looking back, I realized that God placed Hal Santos in my life 10 years ahead of D-Day. Hal Santos began to pray for me. Hal Santos left Louisiana, and he went as a youth minister to a church up in the right near St. Louis on the Illinois side of the river. And then when that pastor retired, he had Hal step in as the pastor. And he's been the pastor there for over 30 years. And when I call, you know, in my darkest hour, I didn't call my pastor at home. No, my pastor at home is a nice guy, great guy. But I called a man that lived 500 miles away, not five minutes away. Why? One word, relationship. Looking back, what I realized is that what Hal had demonstrated to me for Ten years was the unconditional love of Jesus. He says, when I called Hal, he didn't beat me up with religious questions. He didn't, are you going to church? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? He just loved on me. And when I told him what had happened, he said, Ted, I've been praying for you ever since we met. And this has been my prayer. God, I know one day Ted's going to hit the wall. And when he does, let me be there for him. Wow. Wow. He arranged for my wife and I to fly to St. Louis. He picked me up at the airport and took me on the longest 30 minute ride of my life to go face my wife who had arrived ahead of me. What do I do, Hal? What do I do? He said, Ted, Jesus said the truth would set you free. He never said said it would be painless or easy. He said, it set you free. He said, if you'll trust Jesus today, trust him like you did when you were 15, when you went to that cemetery and cried out to him. He said, you see, you left him. He never left you. In all these years, he's been trying to draw you back. He said, trust him with that same childlike faith. You know, and when we read scripture, when I first read the scripture where, Jesus is speaking, and the disciples are trying to shoo the children away. And Jesus says, no, let the children come to me. And unless you come as a child, you cannot come. When I first read that, I said, okay, I don't get it. Well, I get it big time now. What is it about children? It's their innocence. And innocent children have what? Absolute, unconditional trust in a loving parent. They're not afraid that when you feed them, good, you're poisoning them. I don't, like when I was in my, I was learning how to learn how to swim. So I'm, I'm standing on a diving board and there's 10 feet of water. I'm like six. That's kind of a scary place. My dad gets under the diving board and he says, jump, Teddy. I didn't stand there scratching my head going, oh, I wonder if, I hope dad doesn't move out of the way, let me sink to the bottom. That's my daddy. He's gonna catch me. Boom, no hesitation. That's back to what I said earlier. Absolute unconditional trust. That's called faith. The Bible tells us without faith, it's impossible to please God. And genuine faith cast out fear. So the more faith you, you walk in, the, the less your fear is going to be because you absolutely believe the promises of God. And no matter what your circumstance is, you know that whether it's today, tomorrow, or next week or next year, that God is going to see you through. And he said, now, the other thing the Bible says, Ted, is you'll reap what you sow. And he said, I have to warn you. He said, God will forgive you and God will restore you. He says, but there's always consequences to the choices. He says, and you very well may lose everything. In confessing everything to Melanie, she may divorce you and she has the right to and go. She said, he said, but even if that happens, even if that happens, if you will trust Jesus through the storm, you're going to come out of the storm on the other side with a peace that passes all understanding, a peace I walk in today. And then he said this. He said, remember, Ted, Jesus is both fully God and fully man, and being fully God He's the God who put every star in the sky when you look up at night. He's the God who knew when you would take your first and last breath and everything you would do in between. And he's the God who, if you were the only man who ever lived, still would have stepped down out of heaven and died on that cross just for you. And as many times as I tell this story, in that moment in my life, when I tried to imagine a God that big who put every star in the sky, who, after the countless times I had been blessed and blessed and blessed and had trampled it, the fact that that God could still love me and that He would still forgive me for the first time in my life, it overwhelmed me. And I came to that place when a man comes to the end of himself. And I finally said, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I said, I don't, I don't, Jesus, I don't even know what it means right now. All I know is I keep trying to do this my way and it doesn't work. You see, when you, whatever it is, whatever the sin is in your life, we rationalize it, we make excuses for it. But when, the Bible promises us, it says whatever you do in darkness will be revealed. It's not if, it's just when. And when it is, you see it and you see yourself for who you really are. And it is ugly. It is ugly. And in that moment, I looked in the mirror and saw a man, a man who had been so blessed so many times but had been willing to put at risk the love and devotion of a committed wife, who had been willing to risk and put, at, put in, in danger the future, the, the well-being of my children. And for what? To stroke an ego. Gosh, it just doesn't get any uglier or more selfish than that. And I felt like that's what I was. As I walked into Pastor Hal's house to face my wife, I couldn't take my eyes off the floor or look her in the face because of the shame and the guilt. But I told the whole rotten, miserable truth and I watched my wife walk out of that room in tears and look back at me through tears and say to me, Ted, who are you? And where's the guy I thought I married? In those few words, what Melanie was saying was this. Where's the guy who stood before God and witnesses, entered into a covenant relationship, and you took a vow? And that vow was to love, honor, and cherish me and no one else. Because what I agreed to that day and what I see standing here, well, they're not the same thing. Who are you? She didn't say all that, but in the few words she did, said that's what she was saying. Now, I want to share a scripture with you. The first time I heard this scripture and fully understood it, it literally scared hell out of me. That's Matthew 721. Here's Jesus speaking. He says, just because you say to me, Lord, Lord, doesn't mean you will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will come in that day and say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons and do many miracles. And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. In another version, you evildoers. So church, Jesus is not talking to murderers, rapists, and drug dealers. He's talking to folks that go to church every week. And they take up pew space. And that's it. Golly, Ted, it's 1130. We're supposed to be out here by now, man. If you don't round it, you know. Wrap this thing up, that church down the street's going to beat us to the steakhouse. (laughs) Or, golly man, great sermon, but I need to be sitting in front of my big screen for kickoff. Last time I checked, Sunday was the Lord's day, not his hour. You see, it's all about the heart. You can be you can be the biggest tither in your church. You can go on every mission trip that this church sponsors. You can be the pastor of this church. You can be, the, you can be the, the visiting evangelist. And you can do all the right things and still go straight to hell. Because what we are judged on is not what we do, but the attitude of our heart. I speak to a lot of men, and I tell them, I want you to remember Two words obedience and heart before any sacrifice that we can make for God. The first thing he expects is our absolute total 100% obedience. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And I can't quote the scripture right now because I'm having a senior moment, but he says, it says for God's gifts and his calling are irrevocable. What's that mean? That means we are individually gifted, and whatever the calling is on our life is irrevocable. So you may want to be one thing, but if that's not what God has in store for you, then it ain't going to work. When I surrendered to evangelism 16 years ago, I didn't just wake up one day and say, well, you know what, I think? Uh, you know what Lord, I think I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to become an evangelist. Ah, uh-uh, that never worked. When I started connecting all the dots and things that were happening in my life, it became, it became obvious to me. That's the scariest thing I ever did. Why? Because I was walking away from the comfort and the security of a job I could still have. Because I could still be working for the WWE. Doing something. Making a cushy, cushy income. But I'm an evangelist, folks, and that's not what you want to do if you want to be rich. I can't tell you from month to month what I want to make. I should say maybe not year to year, because I book a calendar so far out, I can give you an estimate. But what am I doing? What am I doing? God's met all my needs for 16 years. He's he's shown me the difference between between what I need and what I want. But it's a it's a daily decision that we make. But back to where I was in that moment. That's that's what that's the day that I really surrendered, and I gave I gave up. I said, Lord, here it is. I don't care, whatever you want me to do. Pastor Hal asked us to go on a trip with his students to a youth event they hold in uh, Saint uh, in Chicago every year. They call it the Ascension Convention. I don't know why they call it that because anyway, it was, it's it's well yeah, it's leading into Easter weekend. And on the way up there on the bus with his kids and his wife and his daughter, Hal handed me this little book called Maximized Manhood. I recommend this book to every man in this room. And ladies, especially you young ladies who are going to be looking for a man at some point to marry, you need to read this book too because it's going to tell you what kind of man to look for. And Dr. Cole in this book says that again, genuine manhood is synonymous with christ likeness. That real man is a man of strong character and integrity. Hmm. What's integrity? Integrity is who you are behind closed doors with the with the blinds drawn and nobody can see you but God. Who's that guy? You know, it's like you give your word to a friend that you're going to help him with a project, and he gets You know, some other friend comes up with two tickets to the ball game and you've already said you're going to help your friend and then you make up an excuse to your friend that something's come up and all it is is a game and you leave him hanging. Now, he may never know, but you know and God knows. Who's that person? That's integrity. Dr. Coles says, a man is only as good as his word and if his word's no good, he's worthless. Wow. Wow. A real man, before he's the breadwinner in his home, he's the priest. Gentlemen, like, I want you to know something, that it's not your wife's responsibility to bring your children to church, it's yours. Can you save them? No, but did you do everything in your power by your example and by what you said and the way you carried yourself to show them the way? Because I promise you, your kids won't always do what you tell them to. They'll always do what they see you do. What kind of example are you setting? So at the time I'm reading this book, man, of course I wanted to crawl under a rock. And God spoke to my heart in this moment, and it was like, it was a slap in the face. It was the wake-up call. And he said, Ted, you, are a, you were a bigger man when you were 15 years old, when you cried out to me in that desert cemetery than you are right now. And right now you got everything you thought you ever wanted. You're a big star in wrestling. You're making money. You're traveling the world in Lear Jets and limousines. What do you have that matters? What do you have that's going to last? Nothing. Got to Chicago. And walked into this big ballroom full of teenagers. Why was I there? I had confessed to God and to Pastor Hal and my wife. There wasn't anybody else to confess to. And. There are no coincidences with God, I believe only divine appointments. 1,500 teenagers from all over the state of Illinois, wrestling fans. God put me in front of an entire room full of people who recognized me as that television star. It's as if if God said, okay, Ted, I've, I've heard what you have to say again. I've seen your tears. What has controlled your life for 20 years is your pride, your ego, image. The speaker that day is a wonderful man of God named Reggie Dabbs. And he gave the invitation, it was something like, if you're tired of living a lie, you know what you need and you know it's Jesus, just get out of your chair, get up here now. With the million dollar man, get up in front of 1500 wrestling fans and go forward in humility. bet, you see, gang, God finally had me at a place where he wants all of us at some point in time in our life, willing to run to him with reckless abandon. I didn't have to far, I mean, I didn't have far to run. I was sitting on the front row. It's more like I lurched out of my seat and I fell on my face dead center in that room and I cried like a baby and I didn't care that day what anybody thought and I haven't cared since. I remember those teenagers coming around me and they were crying too. And they lifted me up off my face and they were hugging my neck and I was hugging theirs. i never forget that. God is no respecter of person. There's no celebrities there. All God's children, irregardless of age. My wife came to me and she said, Ted, I'm not going to make you a promise I can't keep because I don't know that I'm strong enough broken my heart and I've asked God for a new one, but I serve a God of restoration and forgiveness. And she says, all I'm going to tell you is that I forgive you. I'm called on to forgive you. I forgive you. I just don't know if I'm strong enough to stay. But because I want to be obedient, and that's the word she used, I want to be obedient to this still small voice in my life, my heart that says, give him another chance. I'm going to try. And I want you to know, based on the confession I made, the fact that my wife was willing to try absolutely, totally overwhelmed me. And I looked at her that day and I said, if you'll give me this chance, I'll become the man you thought you married. I'll become that man of strong character and integrity. I'll become a spiritual leader in my home. And God willing, one day I'll regain your trust and respect. That was March, 1992. This last New Year's Eve, my wife and I celebrated our 35th wedding anniversary. And again, God doesn't just fix things. Jesus said, I came that you have life, and have it more abundantly. The relationship that I have with my wife today is far greater, far deeper on every imaginable level. My wife is absolutely, unconditionally my very best friend. There's a song that Bette Medler sings and every time I hear it, I think about my wife and I cry. That song is, you're the wind beneath my wings. My wife's willingness to give me that chance was a catalyst for who I am today. I'd already made a decision. I might and probably would still be standing here talking to you. But the only reason that I can stand here talking to you and tell you that I am still a very happily married man was not because I chose to trust God, but that my wife did. And she had the hardest decision to make. To forgive me. It's like it shot me off like a rocket. And I want to say to anybody in this room hanging on to anger and bitterness right now, your willingness to forgive somebody who who knows they don't deserve it may be the catalyst for the change in their life. I never in a million years thought I'd be doing what I'm doing right now. Standing at pulpits and churches across this country and around the world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I never thought I would personally see the miraculous, but I did. On my last mission trip to India, in a small village, in an orphanage, five of the orphans were girls between the ages of I think five and six that were born deaf. And we gathered as a group around them and we anointed them with oil and we laid hands on them. We prayed in Jesus' name. By your stripes, stripes, Lord, we are healed touch these girls and open their ears I'll never for the rest of my life forget the little girl standing in front of me whose caretaker was behind her and clapped and as her eyes widened and her mouth opened and she swung around realizing that for the first time in her life she could hear folks Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever he is Lord of my life. Is he Lord of yours? And if he's not, please believe me. There's nothing he's done for me that he won't do for you. Because he loves us all. He loves us all. The the, the prince of, of the universe was willing to step down off the throne and live as a peasant for 33 years and die on a cross, a horrible death out of love. So where are you today? Have you ever made that decision? If you haven't, God says, I stand at the door and knock. you'll open the door, I'll come in. Maybe today through my message, maybe the Lord's come alongside of you and said, you know what, we got off to a pretty good start, but you know, you've let the busyness of your your life and and the cares of the world maybe draw you away. Where maybe Jesus is saying to you, as he says in Revelation, go back and do the things you did at the beginning. Let's start over. David said, Re- "Renew in me this day an upright spirit." So maybe that's you, or maybe you're here with carrying the habitual sin, something that that's you know, the devil knows our weakness. Maybe it's that thing it goes away for a while and then it, it, it you know it's, its ugly head comes up again. Maybe you're in a, in, in bondage to addiction. Are you addicted? I mean, I want to tell you, there's a big addiction in the church, it's called pornography. Huge in the church. So maybe you not only need to ask God to forgive you, but to deliver you from bondage. And I want you to know something. There There were times when I'd let a girl out of my room and I'd get on my knees and I would weep and cry And cuss myself in the mirror and cry out to God and say, I'm never going to do it again, but I did. But I can tell you with all assurance, the moment that I confessed it to my wife, it was over. I was free. Are you harboring bitterness today? What I'm saying to you, my friend is, You'll never let it go in your strength, but if you'll trust God today, in His strength, all things are possible. I spoke at a church in the Bronx a few years ago, and a young black man stood to his feet, tears rolling down his cheeks with his hand like this. Just basically he was saying, as I was, I was just speaking, I was still giving it. And he, basically he was saying, I'm in agreement with what I'm hearing. And after the service was over and I had prayed for a lot of he waited for everybody to leave. And he came to me and he said, Ted, I said, I wanted you to know that today through your message, finally, he said, when I, when I heard finally, I understood he's heard this before. You see, I just happened to be the one that it landed on when he got set free. He said, today, God has finally given me the strength to let it go. I said, that's wonderful. He says, but I need you to know what I have let go and how awesome our God is. He said, I'm from Rwanda. And there were militiamen and ethnic cleansing going on in my country. And they came to my village and they came into my home and they held me and they forced me to watch these men repeatedly rape my wife. And then they forced me to watch them kill my wife and my son and they hacked them to death with machetes. Oh my gosh! I threw my arms around his neck. I was weeping. And in my mind, I was saying, I was was seeing my own family. I said, God, I couldn't do it. God's immediate response was, of course not. Not in your strength. But you know in my strength, all things are possible. I watched that young man leave that church with a totally different countenance and I marveled at my God. That God is here right now, today. Is he speaking to your heart? If he is, I want you to respond. So would you all bow your heads and close your eyes with me now and I'm going to pray a prayer. And I just ask that as I pray this prayer, you speak to the Lord in your own words from your heart. That's what he wants to hear. But more importantly than that, that whatever you hear in response, that you have the courage and the willingness to be obedient to. Lord Jesus, I come to you now and I confess to you, Lord, I'm a sinner. And Lord, I realize today and I have realized for years that all the needs in my life, every possible need can be to be fulfilled in one place, in one place only, Lord, and that's in you. So today, Lord, I ask you from the bottom of my heart to search my heart, Lord, reveal to me the unconfessed sin in my life. Lord, that chink in my armor today, that issue in my life that I need to deal with, that I need to seek your forgiveness for. And today, Lord, I ask you for that forgiveness. I ask you, Lord, from the bottom of my heart. Forgive me today. Today, come into my life. Not just as Savior, but Lord. Lord, today I surrender. No longer my will, but your will in my life be done. And Lord, I believe that there are those in the room today that would say, Lord... As David said, renew in me this day an upright spirit. Jesus, forgive me for allowing the busyness of my life and the cares and the culture around me to choke out what's most important. And I repledge to you today that from this day forward, the, the greatest relationship in my life will be my relationship with you. And Lord, I pray for those who are seeking not only forgiveness, forgiveness from bondage. Lord, they're, they're looking to be delivered from the, ch- the chains and the shackles of a repetitive sin. God, I pray that you would give them the wisdom and the courage this day to understand that those chains can be broken by you and by them trusting in you. And Lord, I, I pray especially for those that are in the bondage of bitterness and, and, and unforgiveness today. I heard my wife say that hanging on to bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting somebody else to die. The only one suffering from it is you, and then if you carry it long enough, you give birth to it, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows from a baby into a full-grown adult, and it'll carry you to your grave. So what I would pray for those in this room that need strength to forgive, Lord, that they would believe. In your strength and trust it today and finally Jesus thank you thank you for your presence with us here today for wherever two or more gather you are in the midst thank you for hearing every prayer cry and plea thank you God for your promised forgiveness restoration but Jesus thank you most of all for loving all of us enough to step down out of heaven and die on that cross for our sin and the sin of all the world. We pray this prayer in your precious matchless name, the name above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Now, folks, if you would just do me a favor for a minute, eyes closed, heads bowed, nobody looking around. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. All I want you to do is raise your hand. This is between you and me. If, if it's just, I want to I acknowledge you if you've made any kind of decision today. So the first question would be this. If you're here today and you happen to have never made a decision for Christ before and you just prayed a prayer and for the first time in your life, you asked Jesus into your heart. If that was you, with the eyes closed and heads bowed, nobody looking around, would you just raise your hand so I can acknowledge that? Any first-time decision in the room? God bless you. That's awesome. Anybody else? Second question, for whatever reason, and there are numerous reasons, but today's a day where you feel like the Lord has prompted you and made you understand that even though you got off to a good start, that the relationship's not what it should be. But you're making the pledge today that from this day going forward, Lord, nothing's more important. If you're renewing today that relationship with him, for any one of a number of reasons. Would you simply raise your hand so I can acknowledge those decisions? God bless you, bless you, God bless you. And just so you know, folks, all of us have to do that from time to time. And the last question is twofold. If you're here today and you're carrying the burden of a habitual sin or an addiction, and you're saying today, Lord, not only do I seek your forgiveness, but I need to be delivered from this bondage. If that's your prayer, would you raise your hands for me so I can acknowledge those? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Last part of that question, if you're in bondage to bitterness, somebody's hurt you really bad, you haven't been able to let it go, but you will believe today that in God's strength and not your own, you can be free. If that's your prayer today, would you raise your hand for me? God bless you. God bless you, God bless you. Okay, gang, look up here, quickly. Went a long time, I, man, I got about 30 minutes longer than I thought I was gonna go. That's okay. I shared with you about going to Chicago for a reason. My, my issue was, was, was pride. It was self-importance, ego. So God took me to a place said, okay, let me see. Are you willing? Will you humble yourself? It's kind of like, okay, I've heard the words now. Prove it. God's word tells us. Jesus said, he says, if you will not confess me before men, I cannot confess you before my heavenly father. So here's my challenge to you. If you prayed with me and you raised your hand for any decision, then I want you to step out of your seat. And I want you to come stand here at the platform with me right now. I want you to just line up right here. If you raised your hand. Now, if anybody that's standing up here is a personal friend or family member of yours and you want to come and stand with them, then Please feel free to, because we're, we're going to pray again right now. But what we're going to we're going to pray a, a group prayer. Okay? As a body of believers. So if you want to come stand with your loved one, please do. But if everybody else would just stand to their feet with me, Jesus said. He said, wherever two or more come together in agreement asking anything as it pertains to the will of my Father, I will hear that prayer and I will grant that request. So that's what we're going to stand on today as we pray for for our brothers and sisters, okay? So let's go once again to the Lord. Father God, we come once again as you said we could, as your children, that we could call you Father, that we could call you Daddy. That we could come and we could come boldly. And today we, Lord, we come. We come, we come standing on the words of Jesus. As He said, wherever two or more of us are gathered that asking anything, according to your will and purpose, that you would hear us and grant that request. So standing on that word, word Lord, we lift up every one of these people that in obedience to your voice in their heart today they have stepped forward. Lord, your word tells us you know us so intimately that you know our need before we ask. You know us so intimately that you know every hair in our head. So, Father God, we simply ask that you would touch each life as only you can right now and let that person know in their heart of hearts that you have heard their cry and their plea, that their sin is forgiven, not only forgiven, but forgotten. And as they trust you, You will set them free from bondage and i pray for those that are in bondage of any kind lord that today or in the coming days that you would cross their path with those who can help them walk this walk and walk out of this that's why we gather together lord that's why we confess our sins one another because none of us can walk this walk by ourselves I pray for all of those, Lord. I pray that you you give them that peace today. Give them that peace in their heart that in this moment, right now, that their shame is gone. You said that when you forgive us, it's forgotten as far as east is from the west. Oftentimes, we're forgiven, but we hang on to shame, and we hang on to It's harder for us to forgive ourselves. Lord, I I pray that you would give that strength today. All old things are in the past, everything has become new today. So I pray that everyone will walk out of this church with their head up, trusting you. And finally, Father, thank you. Thank you for all all of the needs represented at this cross, at at this platform today. All the victories, they weren't won today. They were won 2,000 years ago at the cross. And all praise, honor, and glory are yours. And we give it to you now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving us so much that you would step out of heaven and die in our place. And so finally, Lord, we say thank you. Thank you, Lord, for, for all of this. And as we go from this place, that you would continue to open our spiritual eyes to see the path you've set before each of us, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear clearly your voice above the clatter of a dark dying world, that we would genuinely walk in your ordered steps and your purpose for each of our lives, that you would give us the wisdom to see it and give give us the courage when we need it. Again, we thank you for all of this in your name, the name that is of every name. Yes, Lord, you are the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the Son of the living God and our Messiah. You are Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Let's give the Lord a hand. And folks, thank you so much for allowing me to come. Jared, thank you for having me and, uh, I just want to encourage you, especially. There was one one person made a first-time decision, and please stop and talk to Pastor Jared today about that. Or you have a family member with you, because it's about what you do now. So many times we come and we'll we'll have an encounter with God. I I walked. The, I, I I answered three altar calls before I got it right. The first one was in. Uh, Baton Rouge. The second one was in Mississippi where I live, the church where I've been going for 33 years. But it wasn't until I was willing to give it all that I got it right. And there were a lot of times I sat in a church service, challenged to go, and I wouldn't. Not because I was maliciously wanting to sin. I was just in shame. and And I, my pride wouldn't let me you know and now I don't care. I actually was in Houston several years ago for a church and I was standing on a, a flatbed truck outside speaking to a group of uh, teenagers and when I gave the invitation I said you know as I said it today I said you know you know bring to memory any unconfessed sin so God did what what I asked him to do and I, you know, I answered my own invitation That's kind of embarrassing, right? I didn't care. I said I walked right down off the platform. I said I'm going to come down here and join you, and we're gone. All we're all going to huddle up. And we're going to pray together. So you know what I you know I'm I i do not care anymore. I only have one person to please and, and trust. So guys, thank you so much, and uh, uh, I'm sorry that I went so long. I'll be back in the back. Uh, I have a book. thank you for listening to the exchange church podcast follow us on our social media platforms facebook twitter and instagram just search for the exchange church houston if you would like to give to the exchange church you can go to our website at
0: iamtheexchange.com and look for the red button in the top right corner labeled give online